Imagine if you could, if someone born in our community went far away for a while, uh, more than just Lewiston, Spokane, or Seattle, but perhaps they went overseas and they nationalized into a new culture, a new region, they got paperwork, they became a citizen, and they began to do, do, practice, and be all that it meant to be in that culture. And then they returned, and perhaps while they returned, that country they were a part of became inaccessible. However, they didn't lose that culture, that identity. It was still in them. In fact, proudly in them. And the question of their citizenship here, where they came from, let's suppose it never lost its validity. They were still a citizen here. But there was resentment. You left us. You joined them. You forsook us. Furthermore, suppose that this someone, instead of gluing themselves before the TV or the computer screen or the phone and ingesting tons of Fox News or CNN or whatever people watch, suppose that this person instead lived for the day that that country became accessible. What if their emotions and their heartstrings and and everything that they were and are was immersed in that other country. Indeed, no matter what happened here in this country, war, evil, suffering, what if this person found their solace and their comfort and their hope and that one day that they might return to that country from which they were currently in exile from? Paul is one of those people. The country is, of course, the kingdom of heaven. Paul was born and raised as a Jewish and Roman citizen, but his heart has found affections in the kingdom of God. He lived, breathed, moved, walked, talked the kingdom and King Jesus. In our in our text, Paul just saved himself, or actually God providentially made sure that, that Paul had the rights of a Roman citizen. No rights that actually Jesus enjoyed to be spared from a flogging. And things are just getting started for Paul, though. He barely escapes a death by riot, and then a death by flogging. Paul will, in our passage today, stand before the same court that executed Christ. This is the court that the Roman tribune, Lysias, has just led him to at the end of chapter 22, where there was another cliffhanger. And we're going to cover all of Acts 23 today, but let us begin this morning by rising to read just the first of four movements I intend to study, Acts 23, 1 through 10. So if you're able to stand with me, I do invite you to. And looking intently at the council, which is the Sanhedrin, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to your law, yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Then those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, 
Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Let us not fight against God. Verse 10, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, examine this chapter, <clears throat> your Spirit inspired Luke to write these words down for a reason. The same Spirit exists, um, is in our presence and teaches us this day, and we pray that you would use these words to help us to admire Christ more in the kingdom that he has for us. You would help these words to convict or comfort or encourage or whatever it is you desire to do today, but we also ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts and minds to receive your word, to obey you, to not just hear, but also do the things you tell us. And remind us through all of this, it is because of the love that's shared between you and us. You love us, and we love you, and love should move us to action. Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Exiled citizen tried the comfort of the king. Exiled citizen conspired against and then further exile. <laughs> uh, these are the four movements. And you might be wondering, besides the fact that it's just a theme I, I like to see in the Bible, where am I picking up on this exile and, and citizen language? It's not just the fact that Paul revealed that he's a Roman citizen. But in the original language, there's something here in verse 1 as we begin looking at the exiled citizen. Again, Paul says, or in looking intently on the council, at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, the people behind our pew Bibles who make the BSB, they have produced an online-only translation that's called the BLB, the Berean Literal Bible, which is a translation that seeks so hard to be literal that I've adopted the name for it, Berean Clunky Bible, because it's super clunky in all the words it uses. I feel like it's just more of a steady tool, and it's not really good for public reading. But this verse is easy enough to understand, and it brings out the word I'm thinking of, it says, and having looked intently at the council, Paul said, men, brothers, I have lived as a citizen in all good conscience to God unto this day. This idea of living before God has within its Greek wording, where we get the idea of police or politic or person, citizen. And as the BLB notes, it is a citizen with a conscience to God. In other words, Paul's it's as Paul says in Philippians 3.20, but our commonwealth is in heaven. Paul is saying to a crowd of those 
who fancy themselves to be Yahweh's highest leaders on earth. I have lived an honest, sincere, poor heart towards my king before him up to this day. A clean conscience. My heart's in God's kingdom. I'm a citizen in his commonwealth. He's where I belong. Which you can imagine has an effect on those who would claim to be instead rulers of his kingdom. Hence, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Uh, This isn't unlike what actually Jesus suffered in John 18.22. There was a person near him who struck him on the mouth and they condemned him because they thought he was speaking in a manner that was unbecoming to the high priest. Back here in chapter 23, we read, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And he brings to mind actually a picture that Jesus used, who in turn Ezekiel used. This idea of people who look holy on the outside, but are rotten on the inside. And then Paul continues, Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Exodus 22, verse 28. A lot of people use this, the whole salute the office, if you can't salute the person in the office type thing. There is a bit of debate here. Some wonder if Paul is being facetious or ironic, or if he's being honest. As you might know, some wonder if Paul had bad eyesight. It's not a fact written in stone, it's a theory, but he speaks of ending of one of his book with big letters because he's writing and not his secretary. And some have said, well, a lot of people didn't even write in that day, and so maybe Paul just, his penmanship was bad because he wasn't used to writing, he was used to having his secretary do it. But some others say, oh, he has bad eye problems. That's why he's writing so big. And then they take that with his thorn in the flesh that I ended with last week, and they come up with a theory that Paul's big bad thorn was bad eyesight. He was almost blind, the poor guy. Others say Paul has been out of Jerusalem for some time. He's been out of the Sanhedrin and everyday politics of Jews, so it's quite possible that he may have not been privy to who indeed was the high priest of the Sanhedrin. But others wonder if Paul knew Ananias all too well. Uh, Ananias was notoriously corrupt and greedy and cruel. Never, never mind the fact here in his court, he just commanded the person on trial to be struck. Right in the law, it says in Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So, some say Paul could have known very well who it was, who was speaking. But he was calling attention to the lack of his character to be in such a position. But then he corrected his own missteps if he was at all being a bit too contemptuous to the high priest in the court. But Paul's shrewdness with words in this court trial continues. We read in verse 6, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers! I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So just to be blatant and put everyone on the same page and get everybody squirming, Sadducees were the liberal theologians. 
And the Pharisees were the conservative theologians of the day. And here's what I mean. Sadducees looked only to the first five books of our Bible. Um, it's what's called the Penta Five, the Pentateuch. It's why when Jesus was approached by the Sadducees about the resurrection, you remember that story if, you know, one wife had seven, ended up having seven husbands, which one is the husband in the resurrection? Well, Jesus didn't take them anywhere except for the book of Exodus because it's a book they read and believe in. Furthermore, the Sadducees were basically materialists. They didn't believe in the afterlife or spirits or demons. They just thought that religion from God is one of law and order. And finally, they were rather cushy and built up really well where they were in the Sanhedrin. They were really well to do, really well off. The high priest was a Sadducee himself. Secondarily are the Pharisees. And I've been thinking lately, it seems like Pharisees were the primary opponents of Jesus throughout the Scriptures. But part of me wonders if it's because Jesus didn't have more in common with them. Because Pharisees did hold the entire Old Testament in their beliefs. They did have the belief in the afterlife, the resurrection, the angels and demons. And so here's why Paul splits the court. He's trying to gain sympathy with the Pharisees. And in fact, later tradition after Paul would say that Pharisees doubted the Sadducees would share in the world to come because they were of so much different belief. Now I know all of us never think that of other groups who call themselves Christians, but Paul is gaining, that's sarcasm, Paul is gaining their sympathy and in doing so, he has now hijacked the court's direction. Because what did Lysias bring him in here to find out? Why did the Jews riot back in the temple in Acts 22? It's because of Paul's association with Gentiles, really. That was the problem. But now this court is hearing more about this in verse 7. He says, And when he, Paul, had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Let us not fight against God. <clears throat> that last phrase is not found in some uh, old manuscripts. That's why some of your Bibles may not have it or may footnote it. But I put it in here because it reminded me of what I talked about last week when that's what Gamaliel said, that you might be found fighting or opposing God. This may have been echoed here in this uh, court trial here. <clears throat> I lost my place, I guess because I was speaking. There we go. So now the issue is not Gentiles. Now the issue is the idea of divine encounters. And apparently we're seeing an abridged version of Paul's court case, or maybe some of the men in the Sanhedrin were, were present at the riot the previous day where Paul had given his testimony about seeing Christ and having God call him at the temple to the Gentiles. So if that's the case, the Pharisees here are not necessarily supportive of Paul's Christ worship, but... When Paul made it about the resurrection from the dead, it changed the tone. It was a move the Pharisees fell for. Paul is apparently a good politician. And then verse 10, And when the dissension became violent, 
the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And actually, this is a scenario that's not outside the realm of possibility. The a Jewish historian, Josephus, wasn't a Christian, but he did say that sometimes the Pharisees and Sadducees would get to throwing stones at each other. Some of that stuff happens in our Senate. We don't use stones anymore, but we just use social media. In any case, the tribune Lysias commanded the soldiers to go down and take Paul away among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And this is the, the second violent scuffle that Paul has been rescued from by the Romans of all people. Lysias kind of got nowhere in terms of finding out why the Jews hate him so. So apparently here it was just a matter of the belief in the supernatural. Paul has been through a lot. He knew he would be. Acts 20 let us in on that, that, that he knew that he would be suffering in Jerusalem. He's been through a riot in the temple. He's almost been flogged. He's been rescued again from violence in front of the Sanhedrin. Perhaps he's wondering, I was called to Jerusalem to suffer, but am I going to die here? And the very next evening we read, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome stood by him. I'm reminded of the stoning of Stephen where the Lord stood to receive Stephen there. But here the Lord is standing by Paul. He's on his side. Sadly enough, this is not Paul's first riot. Like, that's not something you should put on your resume. I've been the central target of many riots. In fact, he was Seen, Paul was seen in Jerusalem with an Ephesian, and that's what started this riot in Jerusalem. But all the way back in the city of Ephesus itself, the last time he was there, no doubt this isn't coincidence, but, but a riot was had there. It was instigated more by the Gentiles, though. But right before Luke told us about that riot, Luke told us Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so here in, in this dream, after Paul has been bound, almost flogged in Roman custody, God is telling him, you will see Rome. You'll bear witness there. You'll testify there. See, Paul is this, this exile, this, this foreigner, this stranger with the homeland, a commonwealth in some ways, far from himself. But the king has shown up right where he's at to comfort him. Jerusalem isn't it. You'll be spared. You'll be sent to Rome. And perhaps after having been arrested from a riot and put before the Jewish council who were just as bloodthirsty, at least one side was, perhaps Paul wonders, how? <laughs> how will I ever leave Jerusalem whenever it seems I'm such a target right now? I wonder if you ever think that. Feel that or wonder that. Where God shows up in the middle of your life and makes a promise that seems so far from possible. There will be light at the end of this tunnel that you're in and it's not the way that you'll expect, right? This relationship will be restored. That illness will not end in death. That family member will come to me and be saved. But whatever the situation, it doesn't seem possible. And you don't know if you're hearing God more because you don't believe it, it is possible, or maybe it's not really Him. 
Paul knew he would come to Jerusalem to suffer, but Christ just told him that he's going to Rome. Paul's got to believe, how in the world? (laughs) How will that happen? And now things get darker for him, even before that begins to be a possibility. We pick it up here in the story in verse 12. When it was the day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Let that sink in. It didn't for me. I was reading this all all week, and I think it wasn't until Friday when I was like, 40! <laughs> the, the connections from Paul to Christ and how Christ was conspired against by the chief priests and some of the Sanhedrin and Judas. But also verse 14 They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, so they're going to the Sanhedrin. Obviously, they're probably waiting until the Pharisees aren't there. And they went to the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Again, I didn't quite fit my head around this 40. (laughs) Like, that's this room, almost, maybe, deciding somewhere, let's kill that one man. And it's Imminent. They mean business. This isn't, let's draw up some blueprints. He's heavily guarded by the Romans. Let's begin some... No, rather, it's this is so going to happen that we're not drinking water, eating a mill, one morsel of bread before he's pushing up daisies. He is as good as dead. The the anger, the animosity. If we didn't know it by the riots, we should know now. It's real against Paul. This is Jewish jihad. Some expect to die. While they try to kill him. Here's the plan. They, they say to the chief priests and the elders, the ones against Paul, Now therefore you along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Some plan to die. Daggers under their robes. They're going to ambush the tribune and any other armed guard around Paul and take Paul's life. Who knows what this will mean for Rome in the official sense and the Jews once it gets out that a few Jews have taken justice into their own hands concerning Paul. Maybe they've killed or wounded Romans in the process. They're not going to eat and drink until it's done. It's going down. Or so 40 people have bound themselves to an oath. Until God's providence intervenes once again. It, It intervened with Paul's citizenship. Now Paul's family, the only time mentioned in Scripture, comes to the rescue. We read verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister, nephew, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. We're not told how Paul's nephew heard. Perhaps he worked at the temple. We don't know. He just heard. And he goes to the barracks to tell Paul. Also, we should note that Paul, after declaring his citizenship, seems to enjoy a relaxed imprisonment. At the barracks, he's receiving visitors. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man. The Greeks suggest that the man, Paul's nephew, was anywhere from a, a teenager to young 20s, to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand. This was a sign of welcome and assurance. Going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? The Roman tribune is 
acting very nice and well and receiving this Jewish boy and Paul? Probably because the tribune is in Paul's debt. (laughs) Because, if you remember, Paul was bound up and almost flogged before he realized, or he confessed, I'm a Roman citizen. And that was over the line for another Roman to do that. So it's quite likely that the pampering this tribune is giving Paul is due in part to the fact he knows that he mistreated Paul to begin with. He's not going to let that happen again because at any minute Paul could press charges if he wanted to. So I guess that's kind of like holy blackmail. I don't know. That's not, that wasn't, that wasn't the spirit speaking. That was Kevin. (laughs) Verse 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Uh, The tribune has seen the Jewish council, as well as the others out in the temple and, and how venomous and riotous they can get. So he likely has little reason to doubt this. So he wastes no time, says, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea. This is Caesarea Martima. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. Paul's been there before to leave out of port to go on his missionary travels. At the third hour of the night, which is 9 p.m., verse 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. The road from Jerusalem to Caesarea Martima, especially the first leg, is in the Judean hills. And there is, it's a wonderful sort of place where fanatical, oath-taking Jewish zealots could hide and wait for ambush. So the, the courts in Jerusalem are compromised. Paul's a Roman citizen. He's been arrested. He'll be tried as a Roman. But for what cause? That's what the tribune was trying to ascertain. And so this is what the tribune writes. Verse 25. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, the Governor Felix. Side note, Felix is no excellent governor. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Notice Lysias left out an interesting factor. (laughs) Namely, where he learned he was a Roman citizen. But Lysias is likely hoping that the heavily armed escort and the escape from certain death will sweeten the deal as far as Paul's silence is concerned. The letter continues, And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. I've mentioned this before whenever we were in Acts before, but it it seems like, even in Paul's missionary journeys, everywhere Paul goes and has trouble with the law, Paul is always declared innocent by the Roman and Gentile officials. They're always on his side. They're all like, that's just Jewish garbage you guys are arguing over. Just go away. (laughs) Lysias here seems to shrug him off. Verse 30, And when it was disclosed to me 
that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. My study sources somewhat disagreed, but they believe it's somewhere between 35 to 45 miles. And it was from Jerusalem to basically almost, as you can see, near the coast of the Mediterranean, halfway to Caesarea, and it was the most dangerous part of the journey through those Judean hills. Once to the coastline and near there, there are more open areas made it less likely for hidden ambushes. This is why in verse 32 we read, And on the next day they returned to their barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him, Paul. So now Paul just has 70 horsemen, which is probably more than enough still for one man. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium, or his palace. Herod had built the entire city of Caesarea Martima, and he had the palace named after him there because he was such a humble man. So both... Uh, uh, both Judea, what we would think of as Palestine, and Cilicia, what would be eastern Turkey, were part of the Roman province of Syria. And Felix apparently just oversaw Judea. But he finds out Paul is coming from Cilicia. That's where Tarsus is. But Felix is hearing the case since it happened in Jerusalem, Judea. So it would be as if North Idaho and South Idaho had two under governors. And perhaps a person from Boise got in trouble in North Idaho and he was coming before the North Idaho under governor. And so instead of sending the person to the governor, the North Idaho under governor is saying, well, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I'll just judge the case when your accusers arrive, since it happened up here. Lysias had made sure that it didn't appear to be a big case. He had said again in verse 29, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Here's the kicker. I want us to back out and say, what even started all this? (laughs) Like, how did Paul get here? It's all the way back in Acts 21, which said Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. That wasn't to pray. Crying out, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place where they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And that's where the riot ensued. Hundreds of soldiers intervened. Paul tried to save have his say and defend himself when the Romans brought order and then more riotous threats were made. And then Paul was almost flogged and then he was almost killed by the Sanhedrin. Then he was almost killed again by the conspiring Jews who I wonder if they kept their oaths about not eating and drinking. That Paul, now that Paul's obviously safe. I I suppose if you find 40 men buried somewhere, you'll... But this is the man who teaches everywhere against the people and the law in this place. What it amounts to is this, that this is the one whose passions, affections, desires are for a kingdom, not of our world, 
for a kingdom whose culture is love and grace and forgiveness and service and peace, for a king who doesn't condemn with the law, but he keeps it for his subjects, for a king who doesn't receive people at the temple, but he fills people because his body is now the temple with his spirit. It's a king who doesn't judge sinners with their sin, but he forgives sinners of their sins with his grace if they seek it. And as for Paul, Jesus has once said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. For Paul, he was a citizen of a kingdom not of this world. He was in his nation that he was born into, just not the nation he looked forward to. As it is, he desired a better country, a heavenly one. In the meantime, he would suffer. Hebrews 11 would go on to say others suffered. Mocking and flogging. Sounds like something Paul went through. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, but Paul did, since God had provided something better for us, the Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And so Paul endures here. Christ had assured him that he would testify in Rome. And he has now escaped to Jerusalem. But his home is the commonwealth of heaven. Listen, friends, I don't know what your Jerusalem is. I don't know what your Sanhedrin is, what your trial is. I don't know who started it, how it came about, who's on whose side. But I do know this. If you are in Christ, as Paul was in Christ, then you and I have the same homeland. And with our eyes on Christ and his better country, I think that's what makes the sufferings of an exile endurable. I looked it up, endurable is a word. (laughs) But our affections and our emotions and our heartstrings, we live, we breathe, we lean into, we're affected by, we're pulled by, we find our very being, source, and power in the king of that kingdom, that better country. Here is just exile, strangers, pilgrims. And if you're here, it's because the kingdom of that country hasn't called you home. And like Paul, you still need to testify somewhere. you still got work to do. But the kingdom makes what we do here worth it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, we, we read through lots of parts of Acts as itineraries. Uh, Paul went here, Paul went there, Paul did this, Paul did that. But as we stop and meditate and realize what a hellacious, for lack of better terms, few days that Paul was undergoing here in Jerusalem, the center of a riot, the threat of conspiracy killing him, the unjust courts. But through your providence, you were taking care of the citizen of your kingdom. Um, even away from what we might think of national borders, you're still in charge. And you protect those who are in you. It's a protection and grace and favor that you afford anybody who would come and join your kingdom. So, Father, I pray that as we have our own sufferings and our own trials, I, of course, pray that none of them are nowhere near as bad as what Paul would endure. But for what we do endure, we pray that you would show us the peace and comfort it is to be uh, your son and your daughter in your kingdom. That we look forward to a better homeland, a better country. That it is a place where we can rest all of our hope and promises on. Because those are the promises you've given us. And in the same way, I pray that as you sent to the exiles, living in exile in Jeremiah 29, that we would work for those around us, the goodness and the welfare. Father, that we would plant roots and continue to bring more people into your kingdom. We ask and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.